back online with another episode of A Gospel Treasury to read and to comment on the life of Jesus Christ. The event to be discussed in this episode is written in A Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, of which the main part deals with Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem for a presentation, or also called a dedication, or a consecration of a firstborn. Let's start with reading verses 21 through 24. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the, name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. On the eighth day after his birth, Jesus went through the rite of circumcision in a similar manner as previously talked about John the Baptist. The circumcision of Jesus was the beginning of his time under the law. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. Galatians 4.4 Then, according to the law, at least 40 days after a birth of a son, a mother was to present an offering for herself as a ceremonial purification ritual. The number of days is doubled after a birth of a female for some reason. A mother was to bring a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a purification offering. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. Leviticus 12.8 Luke does not mention a lamb, so we may deduce that Joseph and Mary could not afford one. So they brought just the birds. As for the presentation of a firstborn son... This was done to commemorate the last great plague in the time of the historic exodus from Egypt. In the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verse 2, and then 12 through 15, we read the instruction of God for the Israelites. Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord 
the first male offspring of every womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Continuing in our main text, verses 25 through the first half of 27. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Entering the scene is a man named Simeon, described as righteous and devout. From the Greek eulabis, devout devout means reverent or cautious. He is an exact opposite of the inattentive and reckless Herod, along with other leaders. Simeon readily awaited for the arrival of the Messiah. His social rank is unknown, and a divine reason for a delay of his death is not clear and not explained anywhere in the Bible. According to an Orthodox tradition, however, Simeon was one of the 70 translators of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek, presently called Septuagint, a Latin term meaning 70. Now, this background story of Simeon may or may not be true, and usually I don't like presenting such information, but I thought this was an amusing way of introducing the Septuagint, which is a very real thing. And it is huge in helping um, understanding the Hebrew Bible and upholding the integrity of the Bible in general. Septuagint translation was complete in the latter half of the second century before the birth of Christ. This would make Simeon over 150 years old. He supposedly had a hard time understanding and believing the Isaiah prophecies that referred to the future birth of the Messiah. And that was the apparent reason why God kept Simeon alive all this time. So, no death for Simeon. He would have to just keep on living. Going back to the scriptures, we read that as Jesus was presented in the temple, this person Simeon, he went into the temple courts. Now, his presence was not a coincidence, but he was moved by the Spirit. Simeon did not receive a revelation in a dream, or at least we don't read that, nor by an angel, nor by a voice from heaven. The inspiration came from within. The means of the revelation by the Holy Spirit is often mysterious, but it is repeatedly reflected throughout the Bible. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 For it is God who works who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure John chapter 6 verse 44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day Let's carry on from the second half of verse 27 and through verse 33. When the parents brought in the child Jesus 
to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Someone from the 1800s fittingly wrote that Simeon speaks as a servant who, through the night of long, weary years, has been standing on the watchtower of expectation and is at last set free by the rising of the sun. Simeon's short discourse summarizes the goal of the Messiah's arrival, to bring salvation for both the Hebrews and the Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For he, Jesus that is, himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This was the sort of consolation Simeon was waiting for. In verses 34 and 35, Simeon turned his attention to Mary. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This part speaks of a conflicted reception that will follow once the ministry of Jesus will begin. There will not be many bystanders. People will will either take the works and the words of Jesus to the heart, or outright reject them. 1 Peter 2, verses 6-8 See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. The coming of Jesus would reveal the true intent of people's mindset, particularly those who were considered the spiritual elite. Gospel of Luke chapter 16, verse 15. Uh, Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. These tense exchanges will not be easy for Mary to observe. This sword that will pierce her soul would culminate on the Calvary Hill, where Jesus will be hanging on the cross. This verse 35 is phrased differently in the NIV compared to the Greek and most other translations. It is not fundamentally wrong, but it does miss out on a valuable sentiment. In the NIV, like we read, Mary's condition is placed as an aftermath. But other versions read 
that a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So it is necessary for for Mary to suffer emotionally in order for God's revelation to commence, and not just for the sake of others, but for her as well. She must lose that which is dear to her soul in order to gain it back with the eternal life. Luke chapter 9 verse 24. For whoever wants to save their life, and in the Greek, the word for life is the same word that is used for soul. For whoever wants to save their soul will lose it, but whoever loses their soul for me will save it. Verse 36 through 38. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night, night and day, fasting and praying, Coming up to them, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna is another character mentioned exclusively in Luke's report. Luke provides different details about her compared to Simeon. The name of her father is documented, for example. Uh, Anna's ancestry coming from the tribe of Asher, is a curious note, given how little prominence Asher has in the Bible compared with other tribes like Judah or Benjamin. Her age is given, although looking in the Greek, it is not clear whether she was 84 or if she was a widow for 84 years. Anna is one of the several women who is given more attention in the Gospel of Luke compared to the other Gospels. Only Luke included these female characters in his writing. Elizabeth, like we read in chapter 1, Anna, uh, a woman bent double with a spirit of infirmity, chapter 13, a parable of the woman with a lost coin in chapter 15. And Luke is consistent with that. Continuing with the book of Acts, we read about women like Tabitha, Lydia, and several others. Old widow Anna was dedicated to prayer and fasting, spending her time in the temple. There was a specific area of the temple where women were allowed to gather. It is likely that Anna spent the majority of her time in the women's court. Her attitude was in line with what Paul the Apostle later wrote to Timothy, that the widow, who is really in need, and left all alone, puts her hope in God, and continues night and day to pray and to ask for, ask God for help. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 5. Anna's praise of God when she saw the newborn Jesus served as a reaction and affirmation to Simeon's statement. Luke gives her a title of a prophet. A prophet is defined as a person who speaks for God, a person who communicates a message from God. People often think that predicting the future is associated the most with the ministry of a prophet, but in the Bible, most of the prophet's speeches were directed to calling people to adjust their ways in serving the Lord and declaring his promises.
The delivery of the message can have many forms, but the most important indicator is whether it was inspired by God. As in the case of Simeon, Anna recognized the promised one and spoke about him to others who also awaited the redemption that came with Christ. The acknowledgement of Simeon and Anna should also provide some clarification on the so-called 400 years of silence. A biblical canon does not recognize any ancient writings between the book of Malachi and the start of the New Testament as divinely inspired. A popular notion among the theologians is that God did not speak during that time. Hence, a popular title, The Silent Years, or The 400 Years of Silence. We must be cautious, though, in thinking that God did not speak to people on any level. In the case of Simeon, the Holy Spirit made a revelation to him well before the birth of Jesus. The widow Anna is called a prophet, presumptively known as such also before the birth of Jesus. Just because there is no documentation or official recognition does not infer a complete absence of instruction from the Lord. Something to consider when discussing whether God makes individual revelations in the present day. Closing out the episode now with verses 39 and 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Luke skips over the part which we will look over in the next episode from Matthew's report about the flight to Egypt from the angry Herod. In here, the attention is given to the inner state of boy Jesus. It is hard to grasp how and if Jesus was conscious of his calling during his childhood years. You can find some strong speculations, and this was partially how a large number of heresies came to be in the early church. Thankfully, though, Luke expands on that with a prominent story from the time of Christ's adolescent period. This, too, will be featured in the next episode. Until next time, farewell.